You know, as I think about the events of 9-11, if you're like us, you probably remember right where you were. We lived in Chicago at the time. I had gone down to go to class at Moody Bible Institute and got in the lobby and they said, everybody go home. Uh, there are still planes out there. We don't know where they're going. And I remember watching with Carolyn out of our apartment window, the Sears Tower, as it was then called, wondering, will that be next? And, and praying for our nation as we watched the events unfold on our little 13-inch television. Our boys still find it hard to believe they were ever that small. But you remember that day, likely, if you're old enough. You remember where you were. And one of the things I think about on that day is the, the power of human choice. I think about those stories you've maybe heard like we have of those who would normally have been at the, the towers that day but, but chose to, to stay home. I think of the evil choices of the terrorists to hijack airliners and, and fly them into those towers in the Pentagon, taking many, many lives. I think of the noble choices of the first responders to go in there, putting their lives on the line, many giving their lives for the, the good of others. I think a lot about the power of human choice on that day. And you say, why are you going there? Yes, partially because it's 9-11, but partially because of where we've been going in our series in the book of Esther. We've been talking about a sovereign God, right? No one can thwart his purposes. We've been talking about a sovereign God who, as it says in Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. The reason I brought up the power of human choice today is God's sovereignty was never meant to be a doctrine that makes us passive in our lives because there is another thread that goes through the whole Bible right alongside God's sovereignty, and that is the power of human choice. You can see it throughout the scriptures. Let me take you back to Joshua at the end. He looked at the nation, Joshua 24, 15. He said, choose this day whom you will serve. I can take you to Jesus in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That is a choice for whoever, correct? And many have struggled with this. I have. Maybe you have. Some have said, how in the world do you recognize a God, reconcile a God who is absolutely sovereign and the reality of human choice. And I like the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, I don't attempt to reconcile those two truths. They're friends of one another. Friends don't need reconciled. Others have pointed out, it's not that we need to understand how they work together. That's God's department. We need to look at what his word says, see that it says both, and believe that both of them are true. That's our place. I like the way Tozer put it. And as with any parable, it's limited when you're dealing with something of this complexity. But he said it like this. The sovereignty of God is like a ship. It is carrying the passengers to a predetermined location on a predetermined course. The will of man is like the passengers aboard the ship who are free to eat, drink, lounge, and so on. They are free, but their freedom 
is carried along by the sovereignty of God. Certain things have been decreed by the free determination of God. And one of these things is the law of choice and consequence. I think that's helpful. I also think of the words of W. Graham Scroggy. He was a preacher from 1938 to 1944. He preached in Spurgeon's Tabernacle, and he was one of nine siblings. So I think I know how he learned to speak loudly and boldly. He probably had to do it every morning just to get in the bathroom, right? <laughs> but he says, short and to the point, God is building history by means of men and women. And if you read your Bible, you'll see exactly what he's talking about. The power of human choice alongside the truth of God's sovereignty. Now, before we dive into Esther chapter 4 and talk about that a little more, a bit of a review. You remember last week we introduced you to Haman, a man the author of Esther called the enemy of the Jews. Quite a tag. We'll come back and talk about that later. But you remember that Xerxes, the monarch, had raised him to second in command and commanded that people bow to him. And Mordecai, the Jew, refused to bow to Haman. So Haman talked to Xerxes, offered money to have a decree sent throughout the whole empire, not only that Mordecai would be destroyed, but that all of the Jewish people, young and old, would be destroyed. Today, what we're going to focus on are the choices of Mordecai and Esther in the middle of this trial. And I want you to think about your own choices because we all make them every day. And I want you to think about them in two specific realms as we look at this book. One, the choices we make in the furnace of suffering. Because that's where we find Mordecai and Esther here. This is a dark time. But I also want you to focus on the, the perfect timing of God. The perfect placement of God in their lives and begin to think about where is it that God has placed me, what situations has he placed me in, and what choices would he have me make in light of those, okay? So with that, open your Bible, please, to Esther chapter 4. This decree has gone out through the whole empire, and we're going to talk about the reactions to Haman's wicked decree. Mordecai. And the other Jews, how would they react? We're told in this chapter with, with weeping and with fasting. Verse 4, First Mordecai, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This was a typical Jewish way of expressing great grief and mourning to, to tear one's clothes. And, and sackcloth, often made of goat's hair, maybe flax or hemp. I think about the closest thing I've ever gotten to sackcloth is maybe you have too some of those Christmas sweaters someone wanted you to wear some year without a T-shirt. It's miserable. It's itchy. But they did it intentionally to symbolize the, the inward discomfort and grief that they were going through. Ashes. Ashes, of course, likely represent death. This is a decree of death and mourning, and these are outward displays 
of that grief. But he didn't keep it quiet. He wasn't just in his living room doing this. Look at what it goes on to say. He went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. That could be translated as shrieking, wailing in his misery. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. We'll talk about that more later. But what I want you to see here, it is very public. It is very loud. And someone pointed out, he's not regretting the decision he made likely, but perhaps he's now seeing, wow, that decision has impacted not only me, but all of my people. And, and he's grieving. He's grieving. Many surmise that it was also that public in front of the palace to get Esther's attention because she's tucked away in her harem inside of the palace, right? Let's go to verse 3. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and, and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth, and ashes from Pakistan to Egypt, you remember it stretched all across this vast Persian empire. The Jews are weeping. And I think about that empire-wide weeping. That's something many of us can remember. 21 years ago today. What about Esther? Verse 4. It says, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. When she heard what Mordecai was doing, it, it moved her deeply within. It, it was tearing her up inside. And at first, she tries to provide Mordecai with kind of a superficial solution. What does it say in verse 4? It says, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. Now, she loved Mordecai and likely had good motives for this. A, either to allow him to come in and, and share the news, or B, to keep him from death. Why do, you, why do I say that? Because at this time, it could be fatal, life-threatening to be sad in the presence of the king. Many of these monarchs wanted no sadness or bad news to come their way. Why? Because that would disrupt their comfort and their delusions of grandeur that they're doing such a wonderful job ruling their empire. We know this from the book of Nehemiah. It happened later with one of Xerxes' descendants who was ruling, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was the cupbearer, and he was sad because Jerusalem, though it was being rebuilt, was still had a lot of work to do, and he heard about it, and he was sad, and he wanted to talk to the king about it. But you remember Nehemiah 1, verse 1? Nehemiah said, Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. What does Nehemiah say when the king realized what was going on, that Nehemiah was sad? The king, Nehemiah says, Then I was very much afraid. There could be a death penalty for being sad in the presence of the king. So how did Mordecai respond to this superficial solution? He refused. Verse 4 says he would not accept them. He would not accept them. He was not willing to just cover up 
and be quiet. It was, it was too deep for that. He wanted Esther's help. And so now you're going to see Esther do some, some research. And, and right here we're going to start to see Esther and Mordecai sending this man named Hathak back and forth. They didn't have email. Hathak was their email. So they could talk to one another, okay? Verse 5. Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Now that tells us perhaps in her harem there, she was somewhat insulated from what Xerxes was doing. She wants to learn what it was and, and why it was. And some have pointed out that this is a good example for us to follow. When you get a hint that someone in the church or in your neighborhood perhaps is, is suffering, don't just wish to yourself or even tell them, hey, just, just cover it up, suck it up. Because sometimes that's what we want to do, right? Because suffering is inconvenient. There are moments in life where we need to, to look deeper to learn what it is in their lives and, and why it is. That's what Esther did. I like what Matthew Henry said about this. He said, if we must weep with those that weep, we must know why they weep. So she's doing some research. Why is Mordecai so torn up inside? Now we're going to get to Mordecai's request back, and I'm going to paraphrase it like this. Esther, it is worse than you can imagine. Please plead with the king. Look at verse 6. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Now, if you go back into chapter 3 when it talks about this amount of silver, it's interesting to study just how much this was. Haman had offered Xerxes 750,000 pounds of silver. Some scholars have estimated that that amount was about two-thirds of the, the Persian GDP at that time. And, and surmised there's no way Haman had that on his own. So maybe what he was saying was, when we plunder the Jews, we will have that much to put in. If you want to do an interesting exercise, take 750,000 pounds of silver to an online silver calculator. See what it is today. It's not an exact parallel, but it will give you some sense of the massive amount of money Haman had offered. And, and it reminds us that if any of us thought money driving policy was a, a new idea, it is not. It is not. Nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. Verse 8, Mordecai continues to give Hathak the evidence of what's going on to take to Esther. Also gave Hathak a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. Here it is in writing that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and command her to go to the king, to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, this is interesting. If Esther's identity as a Jew was not out last week, it is now, at least with this Hathak. Tell her to plead with the king on behalf of not just the Jews, her, her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. 
What was her reply? I'm going to summarize it like this. Her reply was, Mordecai, the stakes for me are unimaginably high if I am to do this. Look at verse 10. As Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Some historians have said kings at this time sometimes had men around them with swords or axes for this very purpose. If someone walked in unannounced and the king did not put his scepter out, you could die on the very spot. You may say, why? Well, some believe it was for the safety of the king. We already heard of a foiled assassination plot, right? And we learned it later in Xerxes' history. He does die at the hands of an assassination plot. So he can't just walk in there unannounced. But it gets worse for Esther. It's not, it's not just that. As for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. What's she saying there? Not only is there the law, but he and I are not on the best terms right now. It's not like we just had lunch together. I haven't seen him for 30 days, which makes it even more risky. So what is Mordecai's retort? He's, he's heard this concern from Esther, and it comes in several parts. I want to break it down first with verse 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. What is he saying there? I believe he's saying, barring a deliverance, your life is on the line either way. You're a Jew, and that's going to come out. So possible death at the hands of King Xerxes is, is no worse than death by Haman's decree. Now think about that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Barring Jesus' return in our lifetimes, which is a blessed possibility, Barring that, though, every one of us is going to die. And there is a question we need to deal with as God's children. Do we want to die courageously and faithfully following our God or cowardly and shrinking back? Fast forward to your deathbed and imagine wrestling with that question. And the invitation today is, why wait for your deathbed? Let's start wrestling with that question today. Verse 14, he goes on. He says, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You say, what place? Some have said maybe he was thinking another empire would save the Jews, but most scholars believe no. He's a Jew who knew the Abrahamic covenant, God's promises to the Jews. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Many surmise, and I agree with them, that he was talking about direct deliverance 
from the hand of God. If you don't do this, God will bring deliverance. Now, I talked to you about Haman being called the enemy of the Jews. That phrase in the Abrahamic covenant where it says, Him who dishonors you, I will curse, that was very bad news foreshadowing in the story for Haman because when you mess with God's children, you mess with their father. And the very same thing is true today. If you read Romans 8.31, what does it say? It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I believe Mordecai was holding on to the truth of that promise. God will deliver us, even if you don't go in there, Esther. But what, what's next? But Esther, you and your father's house will perish. These are strong words from her relative, right? We don't want to hear stuff like this. I think what he's saying here is what? There will be consequences for you and your father's house for not being faithful. You will miss out. In other words, you hear him saying, Esther, the choice you make right now in this crucible of suffering is huge. It is huge. And I like what Eugene Merrill wrote here. We need to remember this. He said, though God chooses to use people, he is by no means dependent on them. He calls us not out of his need for us, but for our need to find fulfillment in serving him. Do we understand that? God does not need me. He does not need you. He chooses to bring us in. And I think about that, and I think about two extremes when it comes to being used by God in our church and, and in our world. One is this extreme of pride. Boy, this church really needs what I have to offer. They should be glad I'm coming here because if I wasn't here, man, this place would be hurting. That's one extreme we want to avoid. But there's another unbiblical extreme as God's children. And that's the extreme that I, I have nothing to offer for God and his body. I have nothing to offer as a witness in this world because that's a lie from the pit of hell. How about a biblical balance here? Like maybe something like this, like, God, I praise you because I know your will is going to be accomplished. But I thank you that you invite me to join you, that you've given me talents and spiritual gifts and said, I want to use you towards that end. I want to join you in advancing your kingdom for your glory and the good of my brothers and sisters and the good of those who need to hear the gospel. I saw this at Wendy's this week. I had a meeting at 12 o'clock at Wendy's in PV with someone who'd been coming to the church for a couple months, and it was such a joyous meeting. He said, we've been here, we've been praying, and now this church is home. He said, we've been using Esther as a verb in our house as we go through stuff. But what really excited me was he said, we want to jump in with both feet. And here's some ways we've helped in the past, and we'd love to dream with you about how we could, could work together for God at the church. Man, you talk about a lunch that makes a pastor's heart beat. But, but beyond the pastor, I think that's a lunch that makes, makes God smile. Right? He goes on. It's a per, perhaps the most famous statement of the book, and Bill chose it as our monthly memory verse in our highlights on purpose. It says, And who knows, Esther, 
whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What's he saying? He's saying, Esther, maybe, and I think it's stronger than maybe. I have a real strong hunch, Esther, that maybe this is why you were chosen queen for this very moment, for such a time as this. And I don't believe God's done using for such a time as this moments in the lives of his children. Think about for such a time as this, that you're here in your home. You're in your home for such a time as this. In this church, you're in this church for such a time as this. In this community and nation, you are here for such a time as this. In your neighborhood, right? in, in that office that maybe sometimes you like going into, but sometimes you don't. You're there for such a time as this, in the trial in which you find yourself. There for such a time as this. What will you choose? What will you choose? I want to look at Esther's resolve here. Verse 15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Now, we talked about how the name of God is not mentioned in Esther, but we see his finger everywhere. It's interesting that prayer is not mentioned in here either. But I agree with those scholars. When you think about Jews all around the empire and in Susa in this case, it's unlikely that all of these Jews fasted without attaching it to prayer, to Yahweh. Because you read the Old Testament, those two things are connected at the hip. I believe there were Jews joining this fasting with crying out to Yahweh in prayer. Whether that was the case or not, believer, we know today that prayer is essential in the lives of God's children. I, I like what Ian e. Bounds said. He said, what the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but people whom the Holy Ghost can use, people of prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through people. Are we those people of prayer? I hope so, and I don't care if it's here at Wednesday when we have our corporate prayer meeting or at your home or while you drive or where, but let us be people who cry out in prayer to our almighty God. That's where Esther started, but she didn't stop with praying. She didn't stop with praying. I think about what's next, and I think about 9-11, and I think about Todd on that, that plane that likely was heading for another target, and Todd, how he saw what was going on with the terrorists, and he, he grabbed some of the people around him and, and made this plan to, to take out those terrorists on the plane and bring it down, right? And you, you remember the key phrase of that? Let's roll. Let's roll. And I think about that, and I think about Esther here. In this story, this is her signature let's roll moment, right? Let's roll. Listen to what she says. After this fasting and, and likely prayer, she says, then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, 
I perish. I hear words of faith there. Putting her life firmly in the hands of God. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now I think about all of that. Maybe you're wondering, okay, I love that story, but what does that mean for us today? Okay, I think about the phrase, for such a time as this. And you know, I cannot read that phrase without thinking about Jesus. Jesus, the, the promised Messiah. What, why do I say that? Galatians 4.4. 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Die on a cross for your sins and mine, to, to rise again for such a time as this. He came, and that reminds me that salvation is free. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He is our only righteousness that will get us into heaven. Nothing we bring, but to the cross we cling. Salvation is free. But that brings me to another side of the Christian life that maybe we don't hear about quite as often. Salvation is free, but there is a cost to faithfully following Jesus Christ. There is a cost to serve God and those around us. How do I know that? Because in Luke 14, 28, Jesus himself encouraged us to count the cost. And I believe something I'm about to say. I don't know if You've ever heard it said quite like this? I believe there is no meaningful ministry without sacrifice. I want to show you in the Old Testament first. I want to show you 2 Samuel 24. You remember David made a foolish, ungodly decision to take a, a census, putting his trust in the number of people rather than in God. And his commanders even said, don't do it, but do it. And a plague came. Because of his sin and, and he was at the place where he's going to offer an offering to God to, to stop the plague. And he ended up at a guy named Arana's house. And Arana said, hey, David, I will give you the oxen. I will give you the wood so you can make your sacrifice. And I want you to hear what David said, 2 Samuel 24, 24. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. There's David. I want you to go to Malachi. God had looked straight at his people and he said, y'all are despising me. You are dishonoring me. And they respond back. Malachi 1.6, God says, you say, you people say, how have we despised your name? God's answer, by offering polluted food upon my altar. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? Then when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And he gets a little sarcastic. God says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Strong words, right? Think of uh, uh, maybe an Arizona high official invites you to their house for a party. And strange though it sounds, it's a potluck. How many of you are going to bring your leftovers from last night at dinner? Uh-uh, right? He's like, I'm the God of the universe. 
and you're offering me stuff that costs you nothing. I think about that, and some of us are saying, well, Scott, I got you, because we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. Got you. What do we offer as believers? Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That will cost something. That will cost something of our time, our treasure, our talents, and most deeply, our hearts. Is the cost worth it? Yeah, it is more than worth it when you think about what he did to pursue you and I and the blessings of walking with him. But there is a cost. Talk about our hearts. I like what C.S. Lewis said. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. To love is to be vulnerable. There's a cost to agape love. And I think the cost of faithfulness is sometimes felt the most in moments of suffering, right? We find Mordecai and Esther right there in the middle of a very difficult time of suffering. And this is where I want to say that there are grave dangers in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel because it takes away one of the greatest bridges into the lives of those around us that God wants to use, our suffering, our suffering. See, health, wealth, prosperity, gospel, instead of asking God to use our suffering for his purposes, we only seek to escape it. Is it wrong to pray for relief, to pray for healing? No. It is wrong to demand that that is the only way our sovereign God uses. And, and think about it. One, one man brought it out like this. Suffering is one of the best bridges we have to those who don't know the Lord. Can you imagine how ineffective our witness as a church would be if none of us ever suffered? And then we go to talk to people out there suffering in the chaos of this world. And well, I can't relate to you. But suffering, we're, we're all in it together. It gives us an incarnational bridge into the lives of those we run with. Listen, I think part of the problem is this. We want to be Noah without being mocked for building a boat on dry land. We want to be Moses without leaving the comforts of, of Egypt. We want to be Joseph without the heartache of being sold by our brothers. We want to be Ruth without leaving our homeland. We want to be King David without the dangers of, of the lions and the bears and, and Goliath and Saul, etc., etc. We want to be Esther without risking our royal lives. We want to be like Jesus in the glory of his resurrection without dying to ourselves. 
I want you to hear his own words in John 12, 23. He's approaching the cross. As Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. But he doesn't stop just talking about himself. He goes on to talk to his disciples in, in verse 25. He says, whoever loves, lo loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. There are words of challenge in that verse. But I believe there are also words of comfort if we look deeply enough because it helps to remember we're not alone in our suffering. We're following our Savior down a path he walked, and more than that, he is walking with us as we go through our own suffering. That brings comfort in those moments when the answers we're praying for don't come quickly or don't come at all. I think about a man named Joe Bailey. He and his wife lost three children. And as he was going through some of that, they had an infant in the hospital behind one of those glass glass walls. I want you to listen to what he wrote. He wrote it to God. He said, I find it hard, Lord, agonizing to stand here looking through the glass at my infant son. What suffering is in the world? He moves a bit, not much. How could an infant stuffed with tubes, cut, sewed, and bandaged move more than that? Someday he'll shout, run a race he'll sing and laugh I know he will Lord but if not if you should take him home to your home help me then remember how your son suffered and you stood by watching agonizing waiting to bring all suffering to an end forever on a day yet to come look Lord he sleeps I must go now Thank you for staying nearer than oxygen, like dripping plasma to my son. Please be that near to mother, sister, brothers, and to me. Talk about a crucible of suffering, but he found great comfort in the Savior who walked the path first and was walking with him. We're also following a path that other believers before us have walked that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Read it today and, and think of the crucibles of suffering those men and women of faith walked through before us. And you know what it says in Hebrews 12 after it goes through that hall of faith? Verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Think about that cloud of witnesses. I think about Noah and Moses and Paul. Come on. Come on, finish strong, believers. And I think about a cross-country race we were at yesterday. My son Evan had his first one down in Chandler. If you've ever been to a cross-country meet, you know they run one and a half miles, and the crowd starts at the starting line, and then you move to a middle section, and then you move to the finish line. But for a lot of the race, 
you don't see them. But you wait there at the finish line, and, and we saw Evan coming around. We said, yeah, Evan, get him. There was a guy right by him. Get him, get him. And after the race, we gave him a hug, and he told me something. He stuck with me. He said, when I got close to that finish line, I felt lighter. And I said, I think I know what that was. For a lot of the race, you guys are out there sweating, running alone, right? But you heard us cheering you on. And to think of those who have gone before, this cloud of, of witnesses cheering us on. Let us run with endurance. But then he, he goes back to looking to Jesus, verses 2 and 3. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Listen, God uses the choices we make in our own crucibles of suffering. And he still puts us in the right place at the right time to make choices to join him in his mission. So my encouragement to you this morning is to look around and ask God to show you what choice do I need to make this week? Maybe it's the choice to come to Jesus for the first time. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. But maybe you're already a follower. Maybe it's a choice to be a bold witness to that person you've been holding back on. Maybe it's a choice to gently comfort, to do a little research and find out why that person next to you or in your neighborhood is, is suffering. Comfort them. Maybe it's a choice to faithfully confront sin in someone you love or your own life. Maybe it's a choice to forgive. I will finally lay down this bitterness. Maybe it's a choice to serve someone. But as we talk about these choices in the crucibles of suffering and choices at the right place, right time, I want you to hear from Larry and Laura. Laura's going to share first. Come on down here. She's going to share about choices made for God in the middle of suffering. And then her husband Larry's going to share about choices made for God in one of those right place, right time moments. And I hope it encourages us to look around our own lives. So. Thank you, guys. This is the second time you've been up here today. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, good morning. Uh, this morning I woke up, and on my heart was Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Let's love the Lord with all our heart. Lean not under our own understanding. And always acknowledge him, and he will direct our path. And absolutely, um, I'm going to go back in time. Over 25 years ago, I was diagnosed with melanoma. And I had surgery, and that scripture just got me through everything because in the very moment you're shocked and you don't know what you know tomorrow's going to bring. So the, I saw the oncologist, and he said that's the one cancer that you never get rid of; you always have it. And um, so it's just basically pretty much like a remission, and they remove it as it comes. And so. Um, it would drive you crazy. I don't know how people without the Lord can go through things like that. And so fast forward like five years later, I had a woman, I was a food server, and I hadn't seen her in a year, and then all of a sudden there she is, and she has one leg. And I went up to her, and I said, oh, my goodness, what happened? And she said, melanoma. So it took her leg, and I instantly sat her and 
just prayed with her and said, do you have a good Bible teaching church you go to? And she said, no, I don't. And I, that was on a Friday, so I said, well, Sunday my husband and I are going to church, and you and your husband are welcome to come. Here's our address, phone number, 8.30 in the morning, we're leaving, and ding dong, there they heard and her husband were at our door. And we were attending um, in California uh, Harvest Christian Fellowship at the time, and Greg Laurie, at the service we went to, he gave an altar call and divine appointment. She was the first one up there on her crutches, and her husband was right behind. And then for over two years after that, um, we had a home Bible study. They were there faithfully every week, grew in their faith. They were used by the Lord, and now they're with the Lord, both of them. So I wouldn't take back my melanoma, even if I could, because you know God used that for his glory. And then fast forward about three or four months ago, I went in for just a regular routine CT scan. And um, <laughs> what they looked for was fine, but I had, they said, possible bladder cancer and all sorts of other things. So um, they did more tests the following month, and the doctor came in and said, wow, there's no evidence of the test that we just did for the CT scan. It's like clear. Can't explain it. And I laughed. And I said, I can explain it. I said, the whole, my church, everybody's been praying. It was the Lord. He healed it. So I'm still going through more tests this month, and we'll get more answers for other things. But through it, it's like I don't have any worries. I have the Lord. He's, I'm not going anywhere till he's finished with me. So praise the Lord no matter what. <laughs> The Lord is awesome. I was working at a store years ago, too, and I would answer the door. I had the keys to the store, so someone buzzed at the dock, and I went back there, and it was one of the drivers I knew, and I knew he was a, a fellow believer. And he came in, and he was all upset. And I was thinking, I wonder what's going on. So I questioned him. I said, what's going on? And he said, well, we haven't been to church in a while, but he, he had this other lady at another store approaching him all the time, and he kind of looked down. He's like shamed. He goes, and all these other people are telling me to go for this lady, you know, just go for her. And when I looked down, I saw his wedding ring. I said, hey, your wedding, your wedding ring, what are you doing? Go back to your first love, the times when you got together with your wife. Think on that. Right now, you're being attacked by Satan. I go, can you see it? It's crystal clear. I go, oh, ding. I go, you have a radio in your truck. I go, and there's a radio station. Have you heard of it? It's K-Wave. They have all these pastors, and they'll speak to you, and it's God's spirit through these pa pastors that will just it'll be so uncanny that they'll be talking to you personally, and that's the Holy Spirit. So put that on your radio right now. He was still kind of down, and I helped him unload, and we got the truck unloaded. He took off. And it wasn't like a few days later, like three days later, all of a sudden, this driver's back, and he's just so happy. He's on top of the world. He comes in. I let him in the door, and he's like grabbing me and shaking me. He goes, I got to tell you what happened. This is so great. And everything you said about these pastors and the Holy Spirit, he goes, he's talking to me daily. He goes, and I go, yeah, I heard it. I go, when you drove up, I could hear the radio outside. I go, it's incredible. It's one of those pastors right now. He goes, but the greatest thing, he goes, total God. He goes, I went by that store, and all of a sudden the back door opens, and she runs out, 
she runs up to my truck and I'm listening to God's word. I'm listening to a pastor. And all of a sudden, she jumps up on the side of the truck and looks at me, how are you today? Her same flirtatious thing. And he turns his radio down a little bit and he says, you know what? Because I'm listening to my savior Jesus right here, the word of God. And all of a sudden her face went into a twisted mess and he goes, you know, I have never encountered a demon, and I, I saw a demon in this woman. He goes, that was so uncanny. He goes, God just showed that to me. She took off running, and I haven't seen anything from her since. Amen. Yeah, and then, then his wife and him went back to church because they weren't attending church that much, and he was following God's word. It was so incredible. Thank you both. I want you to stay here just one moment. We'll, we'll pray together. Lord, thank you for this testimony. Uh, Lord, and just as you work in this room, again, lead us each in what that choice is. Uh, whatever choice to make in our current trial, whatever choice where you put us for such a time as this, guide us by your good spirit into the, the good works you prepared in advance for us to do. And Father, I pray especially for anybody in that crucible of suffering this morning, that they would sense your presence with them. They are your child through faith in Jesus Christ. They would sense your presence, that you're walking with them and give them strength. That your grace, we claim your promise, that your grace is sufficient. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, we also pray this morning that as we take our offering, it would be used for the purpose of proclaiming Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, our suffering servant who has been exalted to a throne far above all rule and authority and power. It's in his name we pray.